Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. So, Gary, there, there are a lot of things that happened in the news this past week. Uh, one of the things that was kind of interesting to me was to see how much coverage was given to this academic scandal. Uh, clearly a, a strong case study uh, on a number of levels around uh, crisis communications, crisis management. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I was just stunned on how it broke through so many other stories that are going on with Boeing and the plane crash. Of course, the things going on in Washington um, with Mueller and the budget and all that kind of thing. But everywhere I went, Mike, people wanted to talk about this, or they were talking about it. And I just think it's, it's uh, we live in a celebrity-focused um, uh, culture here in the United States. If, if there hadn't been two well-known actresses or semi-well-known actresses in this, maybe it wouldn't have gotten the play that it did. And, of course, it speaks in an era of populism to— Probably had uh, something to do with also the nature of the universities, some exactly. elite universities. Exactly, elite universities, right? absolutely. And, you know, just sort of there are a lot of people out there who work their, you know, tails off to get into these places and to see with graphic detail how these scams went down. A half a million dollars to USC to get these two kids in and that they were going to become members of the crew team when they'd never done crew in their life. At Georgetown, your alma mater, Mike, fake tennis player. Oh, yes, oh, yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, I just think uh, it, it's a lesson in um in some ways, the overload that people are feeling uh, on some of the political and economic news and the things that have celebrities in them. You mentioned before we started taping here, R. Kelly. Uh, you know, I was stunned at the uh, how oh, yeah, much the, 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 the day the story broke, you know, where he, where he went crazy going off set mm. uh, with Gail King. It was like, that was the lead story on CBS <laughs> Evening News. It was like un-freaking-believable, yeah, yeah. given all that's happening in the world today. Absolutely. And, and maybe it's a reflection of the numbness that people are feeling to some yeah. of these things that are going on in politics right now. And, uh, you know, the I'm always looking for lessons from uh, what but we you know, do. I, I think there are two interesting things. It's like, so what if you were consulting Lori Laughlin right. in this? I mean, you know, she's kind of taken out of everything yeah. before there's any opportunity, right? Right. She's the actress, I guess. Our graduate assistants here would know maybe Full House is the show that she yeah, was on, that's Aunt, right. Aunt Becky, um, with this, you know, sort of all-American personality persona in those in Hallmark. And, she, you know, if you're advising her, um, you know, th things were going to change for her really fast. And I don't think she realized it, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, she, uh, when she applied for bail, she said, look, Your Honor, I have to go to, I have to, go to Canada to do some filming and the judge sort of reluctantly let her go. And of course, by the time she could even get out of the courtroom, Hallmark had dropped her. This full house redux had dropped her. You know, things happen so fast to these folks. And I, I, from my point of view, from just a crisis counselor point of view, uh, I thought she should have been more visible and, yeah. and, and apologetic. Yeah. I think and, the same thing could be said about the universities. They yes. were actually slow to the punch in order I to get their so. story. I mean, I sit here as a Georgetown alum. Everybody yeah. knows that who listens <laughs> here. Um, but what, what's 
difficult for me also is looking at the fuller story. So here I am, a Georgetown alum. I've given you, you the university money. I've gone to various events through the years. I've uh, helped recruit students and, um, and, and to all of a sudden kind of be hit with this, no message from the university until almost, you know, five days later mm -hmm. when I get it, a message from the university president in my email. But also their responsibility as a Catholic university in terms of apparently they did their own investigation uh, prior to all mm -hmm. of this becoming public of the uh, tennis coach who mm -hmm. was the tennis coach for both the men and women's program. Uh, unfortunately, um, when that was completed, they were very hush-hush about it. And then the coach yeah. goes and gets hired by the University of Rhode Island. It would, you would think that somehow, some way, someone has some responsibility. Right. But I think the core thing, you hit it, I've kind of suggested it, is in these situations that move very quickly, you have to define yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. And I think, Mike, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think this story has the opportunity or the chance to change the admissions policies in, in a lot of schools. And it should. And it should um, because um, we are, and there's many studies that have shown this, um, you know, with legacy uh, admissions and other things, um, a lot of these opportunities at these schools are not open to a broad spectrum of our population. And I'm hoping uh, what we saw last week and the impact that it had will, uh, will be an impetus yeah. for that. So speaking of crises um, recently, um, Boeing has, you know, having a uh, living through a nightmare right now with the crashes of these two uh, planes, the 737 MAX 8, uh, I believe is the number. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not one, Mike, to, uh, you know, sometimes when these crises, these big crises happen, a lot of crisis experts pop up mm -hmm. and give a give their opinion on what happened. Uh, and, you know, it, it looks so clear from the outside sometimes. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't been on the inside of one of these things, they're so complex. There are so many uh, sort of barriers to being as disclosive maybe as you want to be. Uh, Not this, the least of which are lawyers. I, exactly, lawyers. And, and in this case, uh, Boeing has cited, and I've had experience in my time at GE with the regulators at the FAA and wanting you to be um, less than disclosive until the investigation uh, can be completed. And Boeing, of course, is a big part of that. So we saw people coming forward and saying, look, you know, the CEO of Boeing needs to be more visible, needs to be focused on making apologies. They've done all of that. Kind of heard that in the last story we were doing. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, you know, I, I'm not, uh, you know, these postmortems are, are, are simplistic in some ways, but it's the job of the communicator inside the company to get to yes. Absolutely. You know, and and uh, the lawyers, I always said that to the lawyers, your job is to get me to yes. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we say something that's meaningful, that's not going to get us in any trouble, either legally or from a regulatory standpoint? And if I were giving advice to Boeing, and respectfully, because they're a great company yep. uh, with a good communications team, it would be to try to get to yes. Right. Well, and, and and the reason why is that nature abhors a void. Mm -hmm. And and you know, if if your company isn't out there defining what are the terms of engagement, 
um, what you're trying to solve for and who you are and what you're about and to share your concern, your empathy Mm -hmm. for what's transpired, all of a sudden you find other people begin to fill that void and all of a sudden you become the villain. Right. And, and, you know, this is, um, you know, I'm amazed uh, at how good journalism has gotten mm-hmm. in depicting these kind of technological, complex oh. systems. If you go on to the New York Times website or the Journal, Journal did a nice job on this too. I mean, they present it in very well-illustrated, well-explained, simple, what may have happened with both the Lion Airplane right. and um, uh, and the second crash. And um, so there's a lot, to your point, there's a lot out there that seems, you know, that people can look and, and get, draw their own conclusions. Right. And there's been a lot of reporting about how um, maybe Boeing um, pushed this plane through the regulatory the New process, York Times story, in the New yeah. York Times story. And so in that context, you're the communicator. You're weighing, you know, the lawyers and others saying, well, wait a minute, Gary. We can't say all of this. And then on the other side, you've got this abundance of really clear information about what may have happened that paints you in a bad, puts you in the black hat, right? And I just think communicators have to think about that, is that there may be regulatory long-term issues that you need to think about. At the same time, people are always going to remember this case about Boeing. They're always going to remember it. And you have a very short time to sort of self-define to your point about mm-hmm. nature abhorring a vacuum. You know, the other thing that's interesting to me is there's another story, um, Facebook, mm-hmm. where Facebook is trying to turn the tables. And you and I have seen companies and been part of companies that have sought to recover their mm-hmm. reputations. And, and clearly, Facebook is looking to get on that train. Yes. And uh, uh, what do you think about this shift of... Uh, trying to embrace themselves or put themselves in the cloak of being the protector of privacy. Yeah. And, you know, look, you know, and Apple's doing the same thing. Uh, And Apple's been sort of, you know, thumbing their nose at Facebook, saying we're the privacy company as opposed to some unnamed uh, other technology companies. I'm skeptical of it. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I think Facebook is a very, um, is a great company. Yeah. And um, they're challenged by the fact that their business model um, employs personal data, right? Right. Whether they sell it, they, they rent se- it. They, right. I mean, that's 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 how they make money. So I'm skeptical, and in this case with Facebook, the seeming change of heart came after uh, the beatings continued for a long time. There's yeah. been over the course of the past year and a half uh, several disclosures um, that uh, Facebook hasn't been willing to sort of face up to that core. Is that a pun face? Huh? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's the best I can do right now. That core conflict in wanting to share your life uh-huh. on an insecure or unsecured platform with everyone's interest in having yeah. privacy protected. Well, I think protected. that's one of the reasons it had a problem. You know, they've not been a device company. Yeah. And they tried some devices long ago. Yes. And they just launched one right before Christmas, exactly. late October. They launched something called the Portal. Um, and it's actually very slick. I yeah. mean, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you look into a computer screen and you can direct it to look up things. It can follow you. And if somebody else yes, has it, I've seen it that. you know, it, it, it's 
Yeah. Perfect. Amazing. I would want it. Right. You know, but I think there are a lot of people who would want it, but then they say, yeah, but it's from Facebook. It's Facebook. Right. And look, and you, you know, we, you and I always wrestle with the questions and, and the people who do what we do, do these reputational issues really affect your bottom line or your top line? Right. And when you look at Facebook and we talk to our our students here in the studio and you ask in your classrooms, are you on Facebook? It's almost unanimously no um, for several reasons. But you look at Facebook, the growth of users has really slowed down here in the U.S. where it's more profitable for them. But they're still growing in places like India, right, Mm -hmm. where there are 300 million users or some number like that. So clearly what's happened with Cambridge Analytica with the data hack, um, with some of the lobbying that went on in Washington that appeared to be a little bit heavy-handed, I think has had a significant impact on them here. And I think Zuckerberg is now at the point realizing all of these things that they have to go down a new path. I think, again, I say I'm skeptical. So are they leaning into it? They're leaning, yes. (laughs) (laughs) They've been leaning the wrong way for a while. Again, a great company. And again, it's so easy for us to sit here uh, and and uh, and Monday morning quarterback, but boy, if this had happened a year ago, uh, I'd be right with him. Yeah. Right, I'd be right with him. Yeah. Well, let's move to our interview. Hi, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer from the Crux, and I'm uh, really happy today to uh, introduce our guest, Becky Edwards who is a, a longtime friend and used to work with me at GE and has had an amazing career. Becky's the new CCO at Schneider Electric, and she's on the phone with me right now uh, from Geneva. Hi there, Becky. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me on the crux. Oh, we're, we're really happy about it. And I want to tell a quick story about Becky before um, I do some question and answers with her. Becky, I recruited. Becky, when was it? How many years ago that I recruited you to GE? Uh, uh, almost 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Yeah. So we had a big global job lined up for Becky. And uh, in between sort of recruiting Becky and her coming to actually uh, start the job, the job went away. The job I had recruited her for went away. And I was so nervous to call you up and tell you that. We had another great job lined up for you. But you don't normally <laughs> encounter uh, having to deal with somebody you just recruited and tell them the job no longer exists. And Becky didn't blink an eye, um, was completely understanding of how things worked at the time at GE. And I, I tell that story because it's an example of what an intrepid adventurer Becky really is. When we needed uh, a person to lead communications in our oil and gas business at GE, which was uh, then the job was located in London, um, Becky put her hand up. A tough business, uh, tough environment for it at the time, all new to Becky. And again, she was uh, more than willing to do it. So uh, she she is, uh, when I think of Becky, her brand, I think of uh, her as an intrepid adventurer. So anyway, that's my background with Becky. And you've had an amazing an amazing run since you left GE, and I would just want to ask you about uh, Schneider Electric. This is a this is a big company, uh, one hundred forty two. Yeah, one hundred forty two thousand employees, thirty billion roughly, Becky. I think in revenues yep. and yep. in, in twenty eighteen, and it's an essential 
company in a lot of ways. And this is the first time they've had sort of a CCO, Becky. So I just wanted to ask you about uh, the job and, and what you're thinking about there. You started uh, a few months ago. Uh, just tell us about the job and the company. Oh, thanks, Gary. And thanks for the lovely introduction. In fact, I think that oil and gas gig was what turned me on to the energy business. In fact, no pun intended, or maybe there was a pun intended there, but <laughs> in any case, <laughs> I, um, I uh, joined Schneider about three months ago, as you said, and, you know, I'm coming in at the, I'd say, three-year mark of a five-year marketing transformation that's being led um, by my boss, Chris Leung, at um, Schneider. She started really totally reinvigorating marketing and, and turning it into a more contemporary customer-centric approach with a new brand positioning, life is on. And now my job is to come in sort of like most CCOs and be the chief storyteller and make sure that we're building on the foundation of that brand positioning to bring our thought leadership to key conversations around the globe, whether in the media, with digital influencers or analysts, um, Schneider has a really good story. I mean, we I am proud to evangelize about our approach <laughs> to what Terrific. I call woke capitalism. <laughs> uh, our CEO is the real deal. And as you said, the employees at Schneider take sustainability seriously. Oh. And in the sectors that we're, we're working in, energy management, industrial automation, you know, these are these are the big impacts to have in this day and age of digitization. So, so I see the you know it's described um, in your on your website and elsewhere, uh, energy automation, uh, energy management and automation. So, what is the Schneider story? Um, how do we interact with it um, in our everyday lives? You know, I don't know what kind of building you're sitting in today, but most listeners are probably either at home or in their workplace. And Schneider Electric is doing everything to make that building operate efficiently. So whether it's making sure the light switches work and the systems that, that uh, power those light switches work, um, or the cooling in the offices, or making sure that the monitoring and sensors that make sure that the lights go off when you leave the room. Those are the everyday efficiencies and conveniences that make building and buildings, no matter whether it's an office place or a hospital, uh, work efficiently and make sure that the power is secure and safely um, being transmitted to where we need to use it. Well, I, so I we, we encountered this at GE because very similar kind of company. In fact, our industrial um, business was very, very similar to what you're describing. And boy, storytelling can be a challenge, right? And uh, because it, these are things, jet engines at GE, for example, or um, you know, power turbines, that people don't see every day. So industrial storytelling can be a challenge. And so uh, I love the phrase woke capitalism. So how, how are you, and, and pardon my ninth grade French here, but, <laughs> you know, I'm going to try your CEO's name, Jean-Pascal Trequar. Is that, uh, is that right? Pretty close, Jean-Pascal Trequar. Oh, uh, see? Know, I'm, I'm getting, yeah, I, get, I had a little more practice than you before today. That's my so. Hudson High School French, so I'm sorry. <laughs> 
so so and I watched a I, I watched a video fr- from him today on gender equity. So does all of that, the woke capitalism, gender equity, does that all fit together with the life is on brand that that Schneider is building? It does. I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of very serious um, topics when you talk about energy management and industrial automation. And the the thing that I love about um, Schneider Electric and John Pascal and, and really all the employees at Schneider are, is the fact that amongst all those very, you know, technologically engineering-based solutions that we offer, the fact that it makes life worth living is an underlying mm-hmm. thread to everything we do. So, you know, going to work every day when you can be surrounded by a diverse set of colleagues, um, the gender equity is one effort. Um, we just celebrated the one-year anniversary of an amazingly progressive work-life policy, um, benefits policy. So everything that kind of makes life worth living, whether we can have a solution for that in the technology that we offer, the software solutions that we offer, or even just the policies and practices at work is a big part of the company. That's terrific. And we all know that uh, purpose-driven, um, you know, it's a phrase that's a little bit overused, but um, it's overused because it's important to companies today. And the people that you're trying to partner with or get to invest in your company or come to work for you are looking for that purpose and that sense that their work is aligned with what they do every day. Um, and so I just love that, uh, that story for Schneider. Um, so tell me about your team, Becky. Is it uh, you're um, um, you're working with the CMO on the on the uh, on the new marketing plan? Life is on. Which, by the way, this is radio, sort of, right? So I have to describe the O and on is the power button you see on every device. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So thank you for that. It's, yeah. it's so really well done. So um, what's your role, uh, the communications team role, and and um, and how are they structured? What are you guys thinking about? So it's interesting. There are a lot of great communicators within um, the organization, but they're not necessarily a unified community today. So a lot of my job, in fact, I just literally last week issued a survey across the marketing organization to say, who is communicating and what are you doing? Are you (laughs) internal facing, external facing? What tools are you using? Where do you need the most help? Because I'm really trying to figure out, you know, who is who are my people, who are the communicators, yeah, right. um, whether they have communications in the title or not, uh, that I can help to make sure that their storytelling efforts, whether it's creating, crafting the right story internally or with our customers, um, and if they're connecting to the right people, whether it's journalists all around the globe or analysts. Um, or today's, you know, digital influencers, bloggers, and things like this. So yeah. a lot of what I'm doing is really trying to figure out um, right now who's out there and what efforts are already underway and where I can either connect people better, sharpen some of the tools that we're using, or maybe build some capacity in areas that yeah, need it. Very smart. Very smart. One of the things I found in GE, of course, a huge industrial company that you helped with tremendously was unleashing the power 
of storytelling among the employees, right? And um, understanding who your communicators are, who have that word in their title, but also the people who actually make things and do things um, who are also communicators in the broad sense of the word. And you helped us do that tremendously at GE, and I'm sure that's probably something you're looking at at Schneider as well. Yeah, I think it's really important. I, I, I find it funny that in my in the introductory story that you shared, you forgot to mention that the second job you hired me for <laughs> <laughs> was a job that I'd never done before, right. um, which was employee communications. But it, that really sort of turned me on to the kind of power that brand ambassadorship can take on in the digital age when you help people to tell their own stories about what they do when exactly. they go to work every day. It's exactly right. Well, as I said, Becky, um, before this uh, great new role, had a, an amazing uh, and challenging job as the head of communications at the International Olympic Committee. And uh, boy, there's lots we could talk about there as well, too. But I'm, I'm, I really want to dig in, since that's what we do at the Crux, um, on... Um, <laughs> What the you know you have a a, a relatively new president um, at the IOC Thomas Bach did I say that one right Becky you did oh, you got it excellent nailed it excellent and I was reading recently uh, back in October he he did a piece for the FT on really a completely new approach to um, the Olympic Games and the games uh, um, as many of our listeners know are terrific, just a powerhouse global brand. But at the same time, challenged like a lot of big organizations by things like costs, a public policy issue, social issues, uh, social activism. And so uh, this new, completely new approach um, that Bach talked about, uh, I wonder if, Becky, if you could describe it, because it's really amazing. And um, at least from a host city standpoint and from different sports standpoint, and what role communications played in developing that? So it's a, it's a great story. I think President Bach, as you said, he's fairly new, although not new to the Olympic movement, since he is himself an Olympian. Um, so he what did he, what did he do? What was he? Uh, what was his sport, Becky? Uh, fencing. Oh, cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So you had to so watch we, yourself in the office, right, in case the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there, they would enter meetings with a giant sword. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. Um, in all seriousness, so he recognizes that, um, as you said, the games themselves are the biggest communications vehicle for the IOC. I mean, it's a very powerful two weeks. Um, and some of the best stories in the world come out of that experience. I mean, I myself can still like feel, I've sensed memory of Debbie Thomas skating in 1988. So... People live off of that that emotion and that power, but two weeks isn't sufficient in mm-hmm. the 365, 24-7 day and age. So Bach wants to be more in touch with the fans um, and directly in touch with the fans and make sure that they understand the power of the games, even when the games aren't on. Mm-hmm. And um, that means having a conversation with them about the host experience, about everything that goes into uh, the seven-year process of from from a city winning the opportunity wow. to host the games. Is it that long? Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
it's pretty amazing. And, you know, those organizations that host the games, they're like 50,000-person companies right, right. that are set up overnight and then disbanded after the games are, are gone. So it's an immense effort, and it's, um, it's really... It's really a process that people need to understand better, and I think Fox approaches to be more transparent about that whole journey. And 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 um, I, I read that um, instead of you know, there's been some problems recently with cities wanting to uh, to invest as much money as has been uh, invested in the past in some of these by some of these host cities, um, trying to work with host cities to find ways to use existing facilities, temporary facilities, so that you don't have these white elephants, um, you know, pardon the phrase for us, uh, and that have ex- that exist uh, in some of the games from the past, or a more flexible and reasonable approach to host cities. I thought it was really smart. It, exactly right. And, and when you look at the two summer games host coming up, so Paris, well, past Tokyo, but Paris 2024 and L.A., 2028 are great examples of that, right? I don't think either will require any structures to be built, whether it's to host the Olympians or the athletes, rather, oh, or cool. it's to, or to host the the events. So, pretty phenomenal. Amazing, really amazing. A couple things, by the way. I, I am working out right now on my skateboarding, and <laughs> because... you'll be ready for Tokyo. <laughs> exactly. So. So far, it's, you know, a couple trips to the hospital. But new youth <laughs> sports, that kind of thing, also to get a different generation interested in sort of a, I don't know if it, X Games is the right phrase, but a different generation of sports to attract a, um, a different dem- demographic or a younger demographic. True, and it's another example of the host cities having an impact on the way the game are brought to life because, in fact, the host cities get to pick some of those new events. Oh, is that right? That are, yeah, yeah. So Tokyo had a hand in determining which new events would be uh, brought to the 2020 Games this summer. Wow. Hey, so one yeah. la- one last thing. That, that's really exciting. I'm a, like you. I am a, just a huge Olympic fan. And as you know, through GE, we got to see it up close, um, both through broadcasting at NBC and GE's sponsor, sponsorship. So um, one of the things that vexed us a little bit at GE, as you know, because you were involved in this, was as a big uh, global sponsor of the games, um, often uh, uh, other organizations, and in some cases very rightfully so, leveraged the power of the brand of the games to make a point, whether it's Beijing and the Darfur, Save Darfur issue back in 2008 and Sochi, with uh, human rights issues there. What what would be your advice, Becky, having been on the inside for sponsors on how to handle those kinds of things? Because we love our association with the games, um, but it also comes with some reputational challenge. It's true. It's true. I mean, in some ways, people forget that, you know, the IOC is more like the UN than Nike, say, <laughs> right. right, in terms of its interaction. So um, I think right now, because of President Bach and because of sort of the, the runway and the way things have been set up with Paris um, and L.A., it's a really unique opportunity for corporate sponsors because those two cities have already begun a very active engagement process. So with their public, mm-hmm. I would say, and those are cities that are both 
they have local publics mm-hmm. and global publics. And so when you're talking about having conversations about tough topics, you need to start with a foundation of engagement. And because right. it's there, I think this is this is a great opportunity for corporations to look with fresh eyes about how they can have the tough conversations about human rights um, concerns or um, any of the topics that that is a powerful opportunity when the Olympic Games have the world's attention to, to talk exactly. about. Exactly. So maybe instead of looking at it as a risk, it's an opportunity to tell your story. Um, exactly uh, right. You know, so that's that's really, really exciting. I, I, I loved GE's uh, association with the Games. I thought it helped us tremendously in the markets where they were held, Brazil, et cetera, but also um, just from a brand standpoint, associating with a terrific brand like the Games, even with the challenges, I thought was really worth it. And, and customer experiences and personal experiences for employees were just tremendous. So one last topic, Becky, here from the Crux Studios at beautiful Boston University. Um, <laughs> you, When we were together at GE, you were quite involved and quite successful in helping uh, expand diversity and inclusion um, activities, both in our team, you know, in the communications team, but more broadly, you were quite involved across the company. This is a problem that has challenged the PR profession for many years, and there are a lot of people that are working really um, to, to change that and doing really great things. Um, wh- what's your sense of the progress being made in diversity in our profession? And, you know, do you have any advice for the professional communicators out there who are listening on ways to um, to advance diversity in your organization? After all, it's, it's to your own best interest. We know that diverse organizations operate uh, more successfully. So uh, you've had a lot of experience in this area. I'd just love to get your, your thoughts on it. Well, thank you, Gary. And I appreciate the kind comments of, about um, my own personal commitment. It is important to me. And I, I feel good when I look at industry efforts like the Unstereotype Alliance, which is um, with UN Women. They, we're already seeing a lot of attention being brought to the need for advertising and PR ca- campaigns to reflect the diversity of the world around us. And and I also think in most industry conferences that I attend these days, we're past the point of having to convince audiences that diversity and inclusion is a relevant topic. Right, so right. that's all great. Um, and, and when we do have conversations as an industry, I think we're moving to more pragmatic, solution-oriented discussions. But um, still, when I look around <laughs> at positions right. of leadership, I, I don't see a lot of people who look like me. Right. Which which means we definitely have more work to do to make sure this is an inclusive sector. So a couple of things I try and do, and, and I, I think they're effective, and, and people are, I've gotten good response, but um, so this is what I would offer as my advice. One is for people who look like me, I would say <laughs> maybe ambiguously brown. Maybe you <laughs> might not know what my background is, but you, you said know it, that Becky. I'm different yeah, yeah. in some way. Um, <laughs> Share your own story. Yeah. I make it a part to wear totally. my heart on my sleeve. Yep. I talk about my personal experiences, whether they're good or bad. I mean, you and I, I can remember having some very provocative conversations with you, and that made me feel really good mm-hmm. about coming to work and working with someone like you. Well, so thank you. I yeah. would encourage people to share their stories. And then the next thing I would say is, particularly for leaders of color, 
give your time to others who will benefit from your influence or your own experience. I try when I get LinkedIn invites from people I don't know, if they look like they have an interesting background, I always respond. And I've even had, you know, 15 minutes kind of snap dates with people who I met on LinkedIn just yep. to give them encouragement and say, this is the sector that wants them, you know, at any, whichever stage they're in their career. And um, if I can open doors, introduce people uh, to people I know, I, you know, I send you talent, you've sent me talent. That's right. I think that's, that's what we need to do. Well, you know, one of the things I'll put a plug in here for the Arthur Page Society, which we have a program called Diverse Futures. And I've gotten um, the privilege or had the privilege of speaking there a couple times and made associations, you know, relationships with uh, folks who attended that conference that continue to today. Some have been six or seven years. And just like you, continuing just to talk, give advice, or in some cases, just mentoring them on a sort of an official basis. So uh, I'll put a plug in for that. Um, Look it up on the Arthur Page Society website. But from Becky's answer, you can see why she's such a special person, why she's such such an amazing leader, and why I I loved uh, the time we spent together at GE. I won't mention, Becky, the time, you know, our CEO came to us and decided that we were going to run a um, vocational program for veterans, <laughs> you know, and, you know. Oh, my God. And we, skills to work. Yeah. Skills to work. <laughs> right. And Becky took that on with all of the determination and expertise um, that you can hear from her today, and, and it was quite successful. But we were sort of stunned at the beginning of that. None, no one had trained us to run an online training program uh, for returning U.S. veterans, but Becky uh, did an outstanding job. Well, Becky, thank you for being our guest today on The Crux. Uh, for this time, you know, we'll send you one of our official Crux T-shirts or some Ooh. other such tchotchke like that. A mug. Amanda, what are we thinking? Mugs or... She's Dunkin down Donuts for Dunkin' Donuts gift certificates, Dunkin' Donuts gift certificates would be great. In fact, we're going to have uh, Karen Raskoff, from, who is the CCO from Dunkin' Donuts, on here to talk about their rebranding and all that. So, uh, yeah, we're very Boston here, Becky. We're going to make this podcast wicked good, even though I'm a Yankee wicked fan. Wicked pissed off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. <laughs> all right, Becky, thank you very much. And uh, looking forward to seeing you again. And thanks for being on The Crux. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.